All right, let him let him in, Nicole. Should I do the intro now? Yeah, well, let, yeah. Go ahead and introduce the intro. This is live from the table, recorded at the world famous Comedy Cellar, coming at you on Sirius XM ninety nine Raw Dog and on the Laugh Button Podcast Network. Dan Natterman here with Noam Dorman, the owner of the world famous Comedy Cellar, and Periel Ashenbrand, our producer. Uh, though Noam has some issue with the use of that word. In any case, Periel is with us via Zoom from Greece. Hello, Periel. Hi, everybody. Hi, Alan. How are you? Well, would you would you not say hi, Alan, before I give him the introduction? You're kind of oh, spoiling the surprise. Excuse just, me. Go ahead. Excuse introduce me. him. And with us once again uh, is Alan Dershowitz. Professor Alan Dershowitz. He is a lawyer, a law professor, and author of over 40 books, both fiction and nonfiction, including seven bestsellers. And his probably his most prestigious credit is a, I would say at this point, a regular on Live from the Table. He seems to, <laughs> every time we ask him to come, he, he makes time for us. I'm not quite sure why, um, whether he whether he he enjoys our discussions. I guess he must. <laughs> I do. Okay, I good. Do. But and... first, I start by correcting you. Um, I just wrote my 50th book, not my 40th, The Price of Principle, uh, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. And uh, I'm working on 51. I'm turning 84 next week, and I hope at least another 10 books. Well, I think part a part of the reason you're so... Um... That, that you keep writing at 84 is the writing itself, I would assume, is, is good for your mind and good for good for your health, I would think. Well, no, the major reason is because everybody's canceled me. I can't speak in the library in Chilmark. I can't speak at the 92nd Street Y. I can't speak in Temple Emanuel. Uh, I can't speak in the Ramaz School. They've all canceled me. And the way to fight back against cancellation is to write books because you can't cancel books. Of course, the Chilmark Library, because I defended President Trump, decided not to carry any of my books for um, many years. Uh, they carried 20 of my books before I defended Trump, and then nine of my books they refused to carry uh, after I defended Trump. So, you know, as Heinrich Heine once said, uh, they start by burning books, they end by burning people. But before they start by burning books, they start by banning books. And imagine a library engaged in banning books and banning speakers. Can you imagine if a right-wing library in Texas decided that all pro-choice speakers are not going to be allowed and their books are not going to be shown? Every liberal in the country would be up in arms. And yet the liberals, the radicals, the left all support the library in this case. And they say, what the hell is Dershowitz doing? Threatening to sue a library uh, because they won't let him speak and they won't carry his books? Imagine the principle that's going to establish if they libraries are allowed to do that. Uh, Alan, I mean, about your book, what's your prognosis for the future? Do you expect the pendulum to swing back to a to a sweeter spot? Are you worried about the future? It won't swing back naturally. We can help it swing having shows like this um, and and having books like The Price of Principle may help push the pendulum, but it's not going to swing by itself. It's swinging in the wrong direction. Uh, the dangers today, the greatest dangers to democracy are from academic, left-wing, hard-left professors and students, because they are propagandizing the future leaders of America. Uh, they are not teaching. They're not teaching students how to think. They're propagandizing them as to what to think. And 
the pendulum isn't going to swing because 10 years from now, these propagandized students are going to be editor-in-chief of the New York Times, senior partner in Goldman Sachs, senator from New York, maybe a presidential candidate in 15 or 20 years. So the future looks very, very bleak. Um, You know, I worry about the right, too. But the right is the past, for the most part. The hard left is the future, the woke, progressive, hard left, the most regressive group since McCarthyism. They're the future. That's why we have something to worry about. And uh, and also before we get into other stuff, anything more you want to tell us about your book, why we should read it, uh, what's in well, it? Well, it's, it's an interesting book because it tells the stories. I mean, for example, I'm seated at a dinner party next to, of all people, uh, Caroline Kennedy, the daughter of the former president of the United States, the man who wrote the book, Profiles and Courage. And she says to me, if I knew you were invited, I never would have come to this event. Oh. Uh, she won't be in the same room with me. This is the ambassador to Australia who has to try to negotiate with the head of China, the head of North Korea, but she can't be in the same room with somebody that she previously invited to dinner at her home because she doesn't like the fact that I represented President Trump in front of the Senate. Imagine what she would say about John Adams if John Adams were sitting next to her at dinner. Oh, my God, you represented the people accused of the Boston Massacre. I'll never have dinner with you again. So she had to go back and read Profiles of Courage. Uh, her father's book, and understand that it takes courage to represent unpopular people. And that's always been true of American history. Abraham Lincoln did it. Daniel Webster did it. Thurgood Marshall did it. And I don't want to compare myself to any of those giants, but I'm going to keep doing it till the day I die. I will defend the most unpopular people. The more you hate them, the more I'm likely to defend them. You think that these conflicts uh, give you something to get out of bed for in the morning? Do you think they keep you young in a certain way? Yeah, I suspect so. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's it's so interesting how it's worked, how McCarthyism has worked. I, I have to brag a little to make this, this point worth it. So when I was on the market to become a law school professor, I was like the combination of number one NBA, number one NFL, number one NHL choice. I was the guy. Every single law school in the country bid for me. There was a bidding war. Each one was bidding more than the other was bidding. Stanford was offering me this, and Berkeley was offering me this, Columbia. Today, I couldn't get a job in Joe's Law School and Bait Shop um, because I defended President Trump, even though I was obviously one of the most sought-after law professors. I taught 10,000 students, 50 years. But McCarthyism has trumped everything. And the Get Trump movement today, give you an example. My former colleague, Lawrence Tribe, who can get a job anywhere. Why? I was just going to say that. He can get hired anywhere. Go ahead. Yeah. He recently said that he was trying to persuade uh, uh, Attorney General Garland to prosecute Donald Trump for the attempted murder of Vice President Pence. Now, that may be the single dumbest thing a law (laughs) professor has said in my lifetime. But because he said it, because he's part of the Get Get Trump movement, he'd be invited to every library, every speaking event. Uh, 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 Caroline Kennedy would would hug him and kiss him and want to sit next to him, even though he has made some of the dumbest statements imaginable in an effort to try to get Donald Trump and has trashed the Constitution, has trashed the Bill of Rights, has trashed uh, the rule of law. Get Trump at any cost. That's what's going on. Look, I don't like. I I voted against Trump twice. I'm looking for an opportunity to vote against him a third time if he runs. Uh, I'm not a Republican. I'm a liberal Democrat, but I'm a liberal Democrat who cares more about the Constitution than I do about partisan support for any party. 
you know, I want to I want I use this as a chance to get to the Trump thing in the documents. But you say you're a liberal Democrat. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you're if you're aware of some of the programs that uh, uh, for the covid relief. But, you know, they literally were handing out aid both to restaurants and to farmers. And they tried to do it with vaccines based on race. At what point does the Overton window shift so far that you have to rethink what it means to be a liberal Democrat or, or what what it means? Like well, the party's gone too far now. Did you ever think in your lifetime uh, your party would be handing out disaster relief based on race and want to hand out life saving medicine based on race? But that's not what liberals do. I also wrote a book called The Case for Liberalism in an Age of Extremism. That's what radical woke people do. I hate the radical woke people even more than I don't don't like conservatives. And some of my conservative friends hate the extreme right. Uh, you ought to hate more on your side. You ought to be more opposed to people on your side than on people on the other side. It's too easy for a liberal to dislike a conservative. What's harder, what shows courage, I hope, is for liberals to stand up against radicals. I am opposed to race-based discrimination. I'm opposed to Harvard's admission policies, which favors blacks over Asians. Uh, I am opposed to Berkeley's uh, a room a house where only blacks can live in the house. And if a black person wants to bring his white father or white mother, they have to get special permission. Imagine if the shoe were on the other foot, if there were a white only house and, 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 and in order for a black person to come, they'd have to get permission. Uh, no, we have to have one rule for everybody. And so I'm a strong opponent of many in the current Democratic Party. AOC is a great danger to liberty and democracy. The squad is a great danger to liberal democracy. Fortunately, AOC couldn't win a race outside of her district. Um, she conceivably could win uh, a mayoral, mayoralty election in New York City. I doubt it, but she could. She couldn't come close winning a statewide election for the Senate or for a governor. And if she ran in, uh, in the United States, she'd make Michael Dukakis seem like um, Ronald Reagan. You know, I think I track your views on most things pretty closely. And um, given the what I foresee as the, the future of the Democratic Party's views on Israel or the current views with, you know, even Chuck Schumer refusing yeah. to tweet in, uh, in favor of Israel during uh, the, the Gaza war. And, uh, he's a total he's a total phony when it comes to Israel. But I um, presume he's reading the polls, you know, of his yeah. party. He's reading the polls. But look what happened during the Iran deal. Um, he wouldn't commit himself. Finally, he got permission. He got permission from Barack Obama to oppose the deal because he knew there'd be enough people to uh, support it. We're now thinking about bringing a lawsuit um, against President Biden um, by various senators um, who say that if a new Iran deal is entered into, it's a treaty. It's not a deal. It's a treaty. It looks like a treaty. It walks like a treaty. It quacks like a treaty. It's a treaty, and it needs two-thirds support in the Senate. And we're thinking hard about bringing such a lawsuit. And so it would be me bringing the lawsuit against the Democratic Party, which I'm happy to do. If there's no Iran deal, what prevents them from – I mean, their breakout period is already like, what, four, six months? What, what, what will stop them? If there's no longer a, a negotiated attempt, well, the the deal won't stop them. That's for sure. The deal is a green light. Right. Uh, the only thing that will stop them is, and I like Biden's statement. I mean, he has said that he will not allow Iran to get a nuclear weapon, and he will take whatever actions are necessary. 
including implicitly military action. Look, I think the only thing that will stop Iran from developing uh, nuclear weapons uh, is the threat of a military strike. Sanctions don't work. Uh, making them a pry in the committee. Just the other night, my family and I, we were at home and we watched uh, the new Top Gun Maverick movie, uh, which I like very much. And um, of course, the whole plot is they have to attack the Iranian nuclear facility. They don't call it Iran, but they, they say an enemy that endangers their allies is about to go over the threshold. And so, uh, you know, Top Gun has to go and and, and on an impossible mission and destroy it. That may be what Israel has to do, and it may be what the United States has to do, but they're not going to do it through a, a phony deal. They're not going to do it through sanctions. They're not going to do it through United Nations resolutions. They just, the Iranians just laugh at that. So, um, were you able to see Maverick at home, you said? Yeah, it went Wait. on last night. Yeah, yeah, it went on last night. Uh, Which, where's it streaming? Cost me twenty bucks, but it was worth it. It was a good movie. Yeah, I saw it in the theater because some movies I think you you need to see in the theater. But uh, I do too. But with COVID, we're not going to theaters, so we'll have so, to watch uh, it on on a large TV. Given the likelihood that the next Democratic president will probably be to the left of Joe Biden on everything, and Joe Biden, uh, and given the what, what you said that it's going to take a credible American threat of of a military action to deter Iran. Doesn't that mean that you'd almost have to support the next Republican if if this is, you know, of, of your on the top of your list of important issues? Well, it's not it's not my only important issue, but it's a very important issue. Very and important I think it's a very important issue for America. And I have to tell you that uh, I think it was Tom Friedman who said that Joe Biden may be the last Democratic candidate for president who's pro-Israel. You know, if they were to nominate Elizabeth Warren, if they were to nominate Bernie Sanders, I could not vote for any of them, but I find it hard to vote Republican. Why? I favor a woman's right to choose. I favor gay marriage. I favor uh, uh, reasonable gun control. I favor climate control. Those are all part of the Democratic agenda, not the Republican agenda. So like many people my age and many people of my political views, I'm a man without a country. I'm a man without a party. Um, You know, I'd love to see uh, a, a, another Democratic nominee uh, who was pro-Israel and centrist. I was an enthusiastic supporter of Biden for that reason, but I couldn't support people um, way to the left of Biden, particularly if the issue is um, if they don't support American strength, American uh, exceptionalism, Israel. Uh, those are important parts of what I what I vote for, what I vote for president. So let me give you a chance to prove to the people who might be skeptical that you are actually a liberal Democrat. You had a podcast. It's already about uh, at least four or five weeks ago already where um, you surprised me that you gave a full throated defense of Leah Thomas and uh, trans women athletes being able to compete. Um, you want to just in- give us an encapsulation of that view? I found. Yeah. It and, and I'll tell you, the, the disputes at my family table about that are amazing. I have. um I have two sons and a daughter and a, and a wonderful wife for, with whom I've been married as of yesterday, 36 years. Congratulations. And my wife and my oldest son were totally opposed to my point of view. Uh, they basically said, look, uh, this was a woman who was ranked uh, 240th as a, a racer when she was a man. Now she's first in the world as a woman. It shouldn't be allowed. Um, my other son, who was a sports lawyer, 
um, uh, was strongly supportive of, of Thomas. Uh, for me, it's an extraordinarily difficult question. It's one of the hardest questions there is, just like abortion is a very, very hard question. The reason I ultimately err on the side, and it's a close question, I can be talked out of it, is if, uh, if a person wants to live her entire life in a different gender, I think we should go out of our way to recognize it. And there's so much discrimination against transgenders that I'm prepared to say that uh, it's okay with me if a woman who would ordinarily come in first comes in second and and Thomas gets the gold medal. Um, it's a bad thing. I, I don't like it, but I like it even less if we send a message to transgenders that we don't believe them. We don't really regard them as full women. I regard somebody who's transitioned from man to woman and, you know, really means it. Obviously, if we had a fake, if we had somebody who just decided to transition for six months to win championships and then went back, uh, that of course, that would be absurd. But if a person has really decided to live their entire life and, and we're committed that that's true, um, I'm prepared to recommend. I'm not the one who's coming in second. I mean, the only medal I ever got, i tell you this story, the only medal I ever got is I was a very good a track and field guy when I was a kid. And I was particularly good at something called a standing broad jump. They don't do that much anymore. I could jump over six feet, standing still and jumping. And so I was entered into this thing and I came back proudly. I was 12 years old, came back proudly with a bronze medal. And I showed it to my mother, my very cynical mother. She said, you got a bronze medal, huh? How many people were competing? I said, three. So <laughs> that was the closest I came to winning a really, really good medal. But, um, uh, but you know, so I was third. Um, uh, and if a woman comes in second, that may be the price we have to pay. And are, it's a hard price. Are you that, worried about it? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Go sure. ahead. Oh, are you worried about it backfiring? I mean, I can yes. imagine the day that on TV, a trans woman just kicks the shit out of a cis woman in, in female boxing is the day that people are really going to turn against this. It's one thing to, to say fairness in, you know, in general, but yeah. when you see it, even with affirmative action, I think part of the reason it goes down easier because we never identify the actual black guy. who I, got look, I, I completely agree with you. I am totally sympathetic to that. Yeah. And I do think it can backfire. And I do think it's a hard question. And and you may be right. And my wife and my older son may be right. I may be wrong on this. I don't usually admit that. But this is very hard. It comes from the gut for me. And <clears throat> the stories opposed to this are all anecdotal. And I'm in favor of a more systematic approach. I just want our country to announce we welcome transgenders. We, we, I have two friends who have grandchildren who transitioned and they have become very happy. They were very unhappy previously. And who am I to tell somebody that they can't achieve happiness with their own body? Now, I don't think three-year-olds should be taught about transgenders or five-year-olds, or they should be taught about you know, sex at all. Uh, the limits of sex when you're five years old is I have to do a PP. Uh, I, I don't want much more than that. Um, but, uh, but, uh, you know, it's a hard question for me. And, and I, I, I am thinking with my heart, not with my brain on this one. You know, it's funny. Cause I was, I was 
thinking in the car what I was going to say to you. I forgot to say it. I said, I was going to say, Professor Dershowitz, I think that you're letting your heart get in front of your brain on this one. That's yes. exactly I what I was right. planning to say. I know you're 100% right. Yeah. No, it, it, I don't it think so. I think you're 100% <laughs> right, Alan. I really do. I think that... Um, I think that it's it's really the right way to go. And I think it's an important position to take, actually. So, Periel, what do you say? I want to ask you a question now. What do you say when the mother of the second place 19-year-old comes to you and says, my daughter was about to get a scholarship to Stanford as the best swimmer, and now she's been beaten and... She's worked her whole life to win this scholarship, the whole wife to finish first. She would have finished first, but this guy came along, became a woman, and now has has affected my daughter terribly. What's your answer? Well, my answer is, first of all, it's not a guy. It's That's number right. one. And number two is that, you know, sometimes we have to make concessions for the greater good. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think affirmative action taught us that. Um, you know, it, uh, I'm a big fan of meritocracy. My colleague, Professor Sandell at Harvard, has written a book against meritocracy. I don't know what the alternative to meritocracy is. Let, let me tell you when I really became a believer in meritocracy. I, exactly a year ago, on my 83rd birthday, I had a gallbladder attack. And I had to be rushed to New York. Um, and so we got the first flight out, JetBlue, was September 1st last year. If any of you want to check what happened on September 1st of last year, we had the worst storm in the Northeast in many years. And I was on the airplane with my I almost died sons. that night. I almost died that night. Go ahead. Right. I was on the airplane with my two sons, my two grandchildren, my daughter-in-law, my wife. And the plane from Martha's Vineyard to New York is usually 35 minutes. This was about an hour and a half, and it was buffeting down, buffeting back and forth. And I had only one prayer. I hope this is not an affirmative action pilot. (laughs) I want this action, this pilot to be the most qualified, meritocratically selected pilot there ever was. And when I had surgery, I had the same view. I want my surgeon to be the best. But there's a great story. So I asked for the absolute best surgeon for one of my, I had a, 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 a medical year to speak of in the last year, six procedures. So uh, I, I needed one to be really good. And I asked everybody around and they all said the best person in the world is Carl Crawford. I hope he's listening. And uh, I figure Carl Crawford, a six foot two inch Brahmin, you know, handsome guy and, and uh, white, obviously. And I get to the, the surgery and I meet my surgeon and he's a black kid from Brooklyn, not too far from where I was brought up, still had a Brooklyn accent. Uh, and I said to myself, wow, this is what meritocracy brings. And my view has always been true meritocracy will produce diversity. If you believe in equality, if you believe that all men and women are created equal, then a true meritocracy will produce diversity, not only racial diversity, but intellectual diversity. And diversity of every kind. So I'm a big supporter of meritocracy. I wrote another book called The Case for Colorblind Equality in an Age of Identity Politics. So look, I write about every one of these controversial issues, and that's why I don't have too many friends. So let me let me just answer Periel to some extent, and Alan, you can tell me if you disagree with me. Sure. I feel like the whole concept of women's sports is not exactly the mirror image of men's sports. It's actually created as a way to protect women. 
if we weren't trying to protect women, we would just have sports and men and women could all compete in the same thing. And, and, but we know no women would compete. They, no one, no women would be able to compete. So we had to create a class for them, women's sports, so that they can compete on a fair playing field. And now we're going to take people who are genetically uh, have, have a leg up and I, and the leg up might be significant because I don't know this, but just based on the very few women, transgender women competing in male sports, the number already that are winning and winning big implies to me, and it could just be anecdotal, that the advantage is quite significant. And perhaps even 20, 30 years from now, it's not ridiculous to think that all the all the track and field records will be held by transgender athletes. Mm-hmm. Then you're, you're undermining the whole concept of why women's sports was created. No. Yes, unless you define women more broadly. And so, yes, yes. Look, I've been watching, I've been watching the WNBA. Um, One of my sons is involved in the WNBA. These women are unbelievable. You know, I was a basketball player in high school. I was a varsity basketball player. I played Madison Square Garden. I guarded a kid named Ralphie Lipschitz. You may have heard of him. He became Ralph Loren. Uh, he wasn't a great ball player, but he really dressed well. But but I was a pretty good basketball player. I could never hold a candle to these women. Uh, I watched the other night, sadly, when the Liberty lost. But these ball players, these women ball players, now are far better than the college men that um, I knew when I was in college. Uh, and and um, you know, I think women are just going to get better and better and better and better. Will they ever be able to compete in weightlifting against men? Of course not. Uh, will they be able to compete in other sports? I mean, there are some they can. What's my favorite sport? I can't remember the name of it. Um, it's in the Olympics. You have Canadians playing curling? it a lot. Curling? Huh? curling? Curling. Curling. <laughs> right. Now, that's a sport that women can do as well as men. Men. Why anybody would ever want to watch curling, I have no <laughs> idea. But... Uh, but well, you, you can know, imagine women shooting shooting a basketball for acting. Well, when you're baseball, when you're visiting, but not rebounding. Right? When you're visiting yeah. your grandparents in Montreal, sometimes it's either curling or The Price Is Right, uh, and, uh, and 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 a couple of French channels. But yeah, this no, you're right. by the way, women do have the, the 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 person in professional basketball today, if I'm not mistaken, with the highest three throw average is a WNBA player who shoots around 95% free throws. I don't think any man today shoots uh, into the 90s on free throws. But, you know, obviously you're right. When I was growing up, by the way, basketball was not a contact sport. Um, you know, it was a sport of, of skills. If you wanted to do a contact sport, you went and played football. Um, uh, today, basketball and football, you could hardly tell them apart um, with all the body contact. In fact, I'll tell you a story about that since we're into storytelling. So when I was a law clerk on the Supreme Court, um, we had a Friday afternoon game uh, every week, and we played it in the fifth floor basketball court on top of the Supreme Court. It was called the highest court in the land um, because it was stories above the Supreme Court. And we would have law clerks playing, but one justice would play. Uh, And he was Byron White, who was known as Wizard White, who was an All-American uh, football player uh, for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And um, he simply didn't understand the difference between football and basketball. But this was back in 1963, you know, 1964. He played basketball the way he played football. And 
I got more elbows in the mouth and in the eye from this guy. And I would scream out and yell, son of a bitch, Mr. Justice. And he was, hey, come on. It's all right. Uh, you can call me whatever you want. But, uh, but you know, basketball back in those days were not regarded as a contact sport. And, and in those days, women probably could do as well as men, maybe not in rebounding with jumping. But uh, uh, my main point still with, with Periel is, is you got to make – we're at a stage in America where we have to make sacrifices to, to recognize the legitimacy of transgender activities. And I, I'm – Again, close, hard, difficult question, but I'm on that side of it. Go ahead. Go ahead. We had a guest last week uh, that suggested that the rise in in uh, people identifying as as uh, gay and bisexual and trans and trans is is at least in part due to societal acceptance and and maybe even that society can influence somebody's sexuality. When you, when you were growing up, did you, when did you first even know there was such a thing as trans people? I didn't know there was such a thing as gay when I was growing up. Are you kidding? We use the terrible word, which I won't even say here, uh, the F word to describe kids who weren't good athletes. We didn't know what gay people were growing up, but you were an F person if you weren't a good athlete. Um, and, and, um, we didn't know anything about that. Transgender would be, you know, that would be something that you would expect maybe to see at the sideshow and the Bring- Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. But, but you never, never understood that there were real people with, you know, I, I love the speech from Merchant of Venice. Um, if you prick us, do we not bleed? Uh, that was stated by a Jew, but the same thing could be stated by a transgender person, by a gay person, by um, by people who who were ostracized and marginalized. And transgender people are still marginalized, and I want to bring them closer to the mainstream. And if it turns out that people are willing to become transgender because society makes it easier to do, I don't think that's a criticism. I think that's a good thing. Uh, Perry, when were you first made aware of, of- of transgender um when i was in high school was there somebody in your school a student that was transgender no but i used to um i had i we did have one friend who went to uh forest hills high school i went to private school and they went to public school and they sort of hung around with some friends and i used to take the subway in from queens to go to all the nightclubs and there are a lot of drag queens and trans We don't say women. drag queens anymore. Well, no, I know. Drag queens is a separate category. We do say drag queens. We do? Yeah, because that's a separate category. No, um, don't give I, me um, I grew up. I grew up, in Greenwich, <laughs> I grew up in Greenwich Village, so I always knew about this stuff. And yeah. my grandmother, for some reason, was always fascinated by it. Who was like the first famous? Was Renee it? Richards. Renee Richards. Renee Richards. Or, oh, no, there was somebody yeah. in, a, in one of those. But even before, even before Renee Richards, I may have had the first legal case involving transgender. It was in the middle 60s. I was a young assistant professor at Harvard, and I spent most of my time in the law school library because I was just writing away article after article trying to get tenure. And um, one of the people who brought me books all the time, a really nice uh, librarian, uh, uh, suddenly got fired um, because he was transitioning into she and um was beginning to wear a skirt and 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 beginning to develop breasts and the librarian the chief librarian said 
we can't have our students upset that way. So they fired they, I, I can't say he, or although he and she were very important because the lawsuit I threatened to bring was you hired him as a man, you're firing him as a woman, that's sex discrimination. <laughs> and we, we won the case. Now, all he wanted, she wanted to do was earn enough money and have enough insurance so she could go to Denmark because in those days, the only country, Christine Jorgensen, remember the only yeah. country that was allowing doing that was in Denmark. And so the agreement that was finally reached with the library, and this time I didn't, I didn't even think about this for the last 55 years, uh, was the agreement for the library in those days, I wouldn't make that agreement today, is that she would keep her job, and she agreed to this, but she would work in the stacks in the back of the library and not deal directly with students who would be upset. She was okay with that. She worked in that position for a few years, made enough money, had enough insurance, and then went off to Denmark. And I don't know what happened uh, after that. But so I, I had one of the first of those cases. And for me, it was eye-opening. And, the, you know, the, the person I represented was just the nicest, sweetest person in the world. And I just was so happy I could help him become her. You know, I, I have a, and then I'll move on. I have a very, very, very close friend, Periel and Dan know her, who um, spent her whole life as a man and then in her 50s. And by the way, it was not a story of having always felt that way, but only in the late 40s began to have these feelings, but now has transitioned uh, to a woman. And, um, you know, we're very, very close still. And she knows I disagree with her about some of this stuff. I, I, she knows I don't really agree with her about the sports and things like that, but she's fine with it. And uh, but she's much, much happier. And I'm so happy that she's able to live this life now. The only time in history, maybe, where she actually can go out in the world uh, totally as who she is, at least in New York. Yeah. And and, and get, have a, a um, satisfaction but, in life, you know. But people are accusing me of transitioning. They say I'm transitioning from being a liberal to a conservative, <laughs> from being a Democrat to a Republican. I'm not. And um, but life is full of transitions. And, um, you know, if you're if like me, you don't believe that people are born uh, by God's will with certain genders. But, uh, um, you know, we have control over our own lives. And, and uh, I just think we ought to encourage people to be to be themselves. But I agree. It's a very, very, very difficult question. Look, I think abortion is a very difficult question. At the extremes, it's easy. Of course, a woman should have the right to abort a one week, a one day, a one month fetus. And of course, a woman should probably not have the right to abort uh, a nine month fetus that could easily be removed and be viable and be given up for adoption. And the question is, you know, going to be a matter of degree. I've written about this a lot. Um, you know, Florence Kennedy, who was a great feminist uh, uh, advocate for a woman's right to have an abortion, used the horrible analogy. She said uh, removing a fetus is like removing an appendix. No, it's not. Nobody ever regretted having your an appendix removed. An appendix is not potential life. The decision to to terminate a pregnancy, particularly in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth month, is a dramatic difficult decision and for those people who believe that the fetus at a certain stage is life and has a soul uh it must be the most heart-wrenching thing imaginable so i i you know i think gay rights are the simplest issue in the world um interracial marriage simplest issue in the world there's no other side to that 
um, uh, contraception, easiest issue in the world, because these are rights without victims. But when you get to abortion, it's much harder because half the world believes there is a victim. The vast majority of people believe that there's a victim at a certain stage, not at others. The interesting thing is that the reversal, the overruling of Roe versus Wade is apparently helping the Democrats. As I predicted it would in 1973, when Roe versus Wade came down, I said, other than the women who have the right to abortion, the biggest beneficiaries of this are going to be Republicans. And I also predicted that if it were to be overruled, the biggest beneficiaries would be Democrats. Because when you make it a political issue, the vast majority of Americans want to see a woman have a right to have an abortion, at least at a certain point. And so if that becomes a referendum, as it did in New York in one of the races, as it did in Kansas, we're going to see the anti-abortionists, the right-to-life extremists, lose in most parts of the country. Not in every part of the country, but in most parts. I agree. On, on another matter, or two things real quick. Did you see the news story? I wish I could remember the details. Some state where apparently one year, they, re, they rescinded it this year, they had, in high school, they were teaching the Holocaust, but they forbid the use of the word Nazi because akin to the N-word in, in, in a racial context, they thought it'd be too upsetting for the Jews to hear the word Nazis. Did you hear this story? I and never I, heard that story. But I'll let me send it to you. As a Jew, I'm not upset when we talk about Nazis. Well, and fi- and finally, finally, the Jews in the district complained and said, no, it's OK to use the I mean, N-word's already taken, but the Nazi word, you know. But but, you know, uh, Noam, I suspect, you know, at least a word of, of Hebrew or two. Yeah. Um, when we grew up, if you ever said the word Hitler, it had to be followed by Yamach Shemo, which means in, in English, may his name forever be erased. So you could say Hitler. But you had to say after that, may his name be erased. I don't want it to be erased. I want everybody to understand what Hitler did and what the Holocaust was about and that it was perpetrated not only by Nazis, but by Germans who were not Nazis, who stood idly by. The only thing to guarantee that evil will succeed is for good people to say nothing, as Burke said, and as others have said over the years. So, uh, yeah, let's teach about Nazism. Let's teach about racism. But let's make sure we use the term properly. America is not a systemically racist country. I have a chapter in my book, The Price of Principle, about why America is not a systemically racist country. We are a systemically anti-racist country with pockets of racism that have to be dealt with. But the systemic aspect of our country is anti-racist. And so we have to recognize that progress has been made. Yeah, I, you know, when I think about teaching the Holocaust without the use of the word Nazi or without uh, images of the camps or whatever it is, it makes me think that maybe the total moratorium on the use of the N word is actually making it harder for people to viscerally understand what it is they're learning about. Especially when you use it to make a point. Yes. Uh, uh, my friend, uh, Randy Kennedy, is a professor at Harvard wrote a book. He's black. He wrote a book with the the title of the book was not the N word, but the actual word spelt out. And, um, and, and he, he provoked it. I'll tell you another interesting story. Um, Some of you may remember there was a great case in the United States Supreme court. It was called Collins versus the United States in which a young anti-war demonstrator had worn into court a jacket that had the words F then the three, the letters after that, the draft. And so when the case came to be argued in front of the Supreme Court, the chief justice had the marshal tell the lawyer for Cohen not to use the F word in the court, that it would be it would demean the dignity of the court. We all know the justices said 
what the word is. Just don't use it. And as soon as this guy walked into court, he said, may it please the court, fuck the draft. I've said it. The nation hasn't fallen. We're all going to survive. And what he has said is that if he hadn't said that word, and if he had accepted the notion of the chief justice, it would have helped the other side's argument that it was an improper word. But he said it, and he said it loudly. Nothing happened. The pillars didn't crumble, and he won his case. All right. Tell us about the Trump documents. Um, maybe you- well, we'll, we'll know a little bit more. So uh, just a couple of hours ago, the uh, magistrate judge ruled that the redacted um, uh, affidavit had to be re- released, but he made a very serious mistake. Now, I haven't seen what's been redacted. Nobody has. But in his order, which I've read carefully, he said that he is going to redact the strategy of the case. No, he shouldn't do that. He should redact the names of confidential informants. He should redact the names of witnesses who might feel intimidated. Yeah, but not the strategy of the theory of the case. We're entitled to know what the theory of the case is. Are they going after Trump on violation of the Espionage Act of 1917, the most hated statute by liberals until now when it's being used against Trump? We have a right to know that. So it seems to me from what I've seen is that uh, Reinhardt, who I generally like and think well of, probably has agreed to over-redact the affidavit. Uh, do you think oh, – let me ask for another question first. This may be stupid, but it occurred to me that currently virtually any document I ever see is not the only copy of that document. Everything is generated from a computer. And I was thinking, what are the odds that any document that Donald Trump has in his box, there is not another copy of on a White House server somewhere, on a White House computer somewhere, because they can't give him. I mean, a document, a document can get coffee spilled on it. Anything important can't have. So, no, I think you're right. I think you're generally right. Look, there was allegedly a letter, a handwritten letter from the head of North Korea. I don't know. That might have one copy. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I get a warrant right. for that. Most, most of it will have multiple, multiple copies. That's why, you know, there are no secrets anymore. Eventually, pretty much everything comes out. Um, and and uh, I'm still shocked that we haven't seen, to quote Woody Allen, the nonfiction version of the Warren report. Um, because <laughs> I still think there's some things to be disclosed back now. What is it, 60 or so years? I'm not completely confident. You know, I was asked to serve as a a lawyer, a young lawyer on the Warren Commission uh, by Earl Warren himself. And my justice, Justice Goldberg, told me not to do it because he said this won't be an honest report. We already know the conclusion that Warren was appointed by Lyndon Johnson to make sure that no one would blame the shooting of Kennedy on uh, the Russians or the Soviets, because otherwise we'd go to war. And so the conclusion was determined before the Warren Commission was set up. And I think the report itself leaves much to be desired. It's very possible the conclusion is correct, but the process was not a good one. And what does that lead you to believe about uh, this whole Trump matter with the documents? You're skeptical. You, you think it's political at at, at, at root, but for the political pressure, would this still have happened? No, I think this is part of the goal to make sure that Trump doesn't run again. Um, and um, 
the goal is to get him indicted on a crime. Um, and Wait, then I'm sorry to interrupt. Let me just, it's important to interrupt you there. You mean explicitly Garland is says to himself, I want to make sure Trump doesn't run again. Or is this just bias, which is so deep within him, he doesn't understand it himself? Well, I don't think it's Garland. I think these decisions are being made by lower ranking zealots um, within the Justice Department and the FBI. You know, for example, people like Strzok. You remember when yeah, their emails came out? We have to make sure that Trump isn't elected. We have to have an insurance policy. There's a lot of that. Look, I live on Martha's Union for the summer, and the people here, particularly those who aren't talking to me, which is most of them, <laughs> they really believe Trump is Hitler, and they really believe I'm Goebbels or Goering. <laughs> uh, they think of me as a Nazi war criminal for having enabled President uh, uh, Trump. Um, and that's how strongly they feel about it. They'll do anything to stop Trump from running. I think they don't realize that if Trump runs against Biden, Biden wins again, uh, no matter how old he is. Uh, Trump cannot beat Biden, but DeSantis could beat Biden. And uh, so if you're a, 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 a Republican, I'm not sure the best interests of your party is going to be served by by having Trump run. And there are a lot of Republicans who who understand that, but there are also a lot of zealots among Republicans who, you know, who who will take up arms if Trump is in, indicted. And uh, and you know, look, if Trump were to be indicted under the Nixon standard, you know, Nixon smoking gun, Republicans wanted him indicted. Republicans wanted him impeached. He wasn't impeached because the Democrats wanted him as impeached. He was impeached because the leaders of the Republican Party came to him and said, "We're voting against you. You better resign." Unless that standard is met on Trump, and it's not even close to being met at the moment, I think we're going to have even greater division than we have now. And I think Garland knows that. And so I don't think that he is one of those who is trying to get Trump. Of course, he'd love to make sure Trump doesn't run. But I don't think he is prepared to distort the law the way uh, Lawrence Tribe is. You know, I was just Googling. Uh, I was in Martha's Vineyard one time on a bike trip one summer as a youth in 1982, I believe it was. And I remember the only thing I remember is Mad Martha's ice cream. And still good. It's just I was, bought by a new guy, but it's still very good. Um, and I still about once every two weeks uh, can afford weight wise to get a Mad Martha. So so I love the first it. place I ever had cookies and cream. It was called just Oreo ice cream at that time. Yeah, but there was a fake ice cream that they used to advertise. Uh, of course, never happened, but there was usually a sign, lobster ice cream. Uh, never happened, but that was the, the joke. Look, Martha's Vineyard, probably the best illustration of Martha's Vineyard is I'm sitting on the porch, and this is the story is in my book, The Price of Principle. I'm sitting on the store of the Chilmark porch, which I used to, the porch of the Chilmark store, which I have lunch a few times a week. I had lunch today with my son there. And who comes by? Larry David. You know, Larry was an old friend of mine. I helped get his daughter into college. He used my gym as a place to work out. We had dinner three times a summer every year, maybe more. We would have dinner when I went to Los Angeles. He starts screaming at me. I say, Larry, can't we talk? No, we can't talk. You're disgusting. You're disgusting. All of you are disgusting. We can't talk. I thought he was going to have a stroke. I mean, his, his, his veins were bulging. What did I do wrong? I patted Mike Pompeo on the back. He was my former student. And I was congratulating him for the great work he had done in the Middle East on the Abraham Accords and on other things. 
I would do it again today. But for Larry David, that was enough to terminate a friendship and a relationship and to call me disgusting in front of a whole bunch of people. Ironically, the guy I was having lunch with is way, way, way to the left of Larry David, way to the left of me. And and he loves me. And, you know, he disagrees with me. We fight all the time. But he's not part of the Chilmark crowd. The Chilmark crowd is the most intolerant group of people I have ever met. Look, some of them you can excuse. There are a lot of them that are just too stupid to understand the difference between representing somebody and supporting them. That's particularly true of people who are the kind of spouses, both men and women, spouses of the very rich and famous people. And, you know, they're the people who come along and think they were hit a triple because they were born or married on third base. Um, But so there are some who are just too stupid to, uh, to understand, but others understand. And they're just old fashioned McCarthyites in a new garb. And so that's why I wrote my book, The Price of Principle, to expose that to tell the stories, to name names, to point fingers, I'm not going to cover up for them. I'm not going to protect them. Uh, they're engaging in horrible, horrible behavior. One of the reasons Donald Trump is having such a hard time getting a lawyer, a really, really, really first-rate lawyer, he has some good lawyers, a bunch of lawyers who are really first-rate called me and said, I won't go near him after what happened to you, after the way you've been treated. My God, I wouldn't take his case uh, for anything. Yeah, they'll, and uh, they'll, they'll defend Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in a second in a heart. Oh, oh, without a doubt. And in fact, the you know, the ACLU was so active in defending terrorists yeah. and they haven't said a word about the search of Mar-a-Lago. They haven't said a word about denial of free speech on the left. The ACLU is now the anti civil liberties union. If you want to join a good organization, join FIRE. Freedom of Individual Responsibility and Education. Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm friendly with Greg Lukianoff. Look, oh, I, yeah, he's I, don't, great. I don't want Trump to get away with anything, and I don't want the secrets exposed. But uh, I try to sometimes imagine if the, if the health of my child were tied to what's best for the United States of America, what, what policy would I support? You know, And I just cannot imagine it being better for America to go through a trial, a trial of Donald Trump, and then the risk that he gets off and the fire that would start then, you know, just I cannot. It's very hard for me to, to foresee any scenario where I think a, a, a purely patriotically minded person would want to see the nation dragged through this. And the way that Gerald Ford history seems to have borne him out, although my father never forgave him for pardoning. No, I, I had dinner with Gerald Ford uh, not long after that happened. And he said the two most important decisions in his life were pardoning Nixon, which cost him the election, of course, and appointing uh, to the Supreme Court uh, Justice Stevens, who was became quite liberal. So, you know, uh, he was a lot more centrist than 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 people think. So, yeah, look, I if he were if Trump were to be indicted, he'd be convicted in the District of Columbia. You'd be convicted in the District of Columbia. I'd be convicted in the District of Columbia. If anybody knew we, we, we had anything to do with Trump, it's 80. Was it 91 percent Democrat Somehow. in the District of Columbia, the most heavily Democratic political unit in the United States? But it would probably be reversed on appeal. But by that time, it would take a long time in the country would be would be really, really divided into it would not be a vindication of the Justice Department if he got convicted. They used to say about, um, um, you know, a grand jury indicting somebody 
a grand jury would indict a ham sandwich, particularly if my grandmother were on it. But any grand jury would indict a ham sandwich um, because they indict anybody who comes before them. And the same thing is true of a District of Columbia jury. They very rarely acquit. That's I remember, why. No, I remember serving on a grand jury years ago here in New York, and they gave us like a booklet about all the things we could do as grand jurors. We could ask to see the uh, scene of the crime. I mean, there's a whole yeah, book yeah. of things. We had to read it on our own because they didn't. And so some of us took that seriously and tried to be proactive. And they brought in the. The DA brought in like a higher up DA to basically read us the riot act and say we were like just to behave ourselves. Basically, stop it. You're 23 chairs. Not you're not jurors. You're chairs, 23 chairs. And if 12 of the 23 chairs vote for indictment, it's going to happen. And they always do. And by the way, if the first grand jury doesn't indict, you go to a second grand jury and a third grand jury. But they always indict. So prosecutors can get anybody indicted. My friend Harvey Silverglade who was one of the founders of FIRE, wrote a great book called Three Felonies a Day, showing how with the very expansive criminal laws that we have in the book, especially the Espionage Act of 1917, uh, almost every busy person uh, or complex person commits about three felonies a day. And it's always up to the prosecution to decide which ones to prosecute. And, you know, they they treated um, uh, Sandy Berger and Hillary Clinton, both of whom are my friends, who I like very much, um, a lot less aggressively than they seem to be treating Donald Trump for the mishandling of classified material. Oh, I, I, I have a question say. about that. Am I wrong about this? So there's one thing that interests me about Donald Trump, although he may not have um, done it properly. He did have the ability to declassify anything he wanted, as opposed to Hillary Clinton, who absolutely did not. That's so all me, true. That's all true. So, now, so, but, so to me, is there some in some way, is this a procedural crime on the part of Donald Trump? Simply, he didn't do the paperwork properly. Not that he well, had no way to do it. You don't need to do the paperwork. Uh, it's reported that uh, President Bush, the first, I think it was, um, declassified some material in the middle of a meeting. Bush by saying, all right, let's declassify that. and We can continue to have the discussion at the meeting. But it's a question of proof. I mean, what what Trump can't do is say, oh, I wanted to declassify it, but I, I didn't do it until I left the office. You can only do it until January 20th. And I think he would have the burden, for per certain purposes at least, of demonstrating that he actually did declassify it. Right. I, I, he would. I get that. But I'm just saying it's in some way, nevertheless, it is still different in my mind because he didn't do it, but he could have done it. He just yeah, and maybe he did do it. Maybe Hillary. It. Hillary never had that option. She's an employee. He's the guy making the rules. So it's, well, it's not two sides of the same coin. No, I agree. I think what to be changes in law. I think we ought to not allow a president just to declassify or classify everything. I think there ought to be a process put in place where there is a paper record of classification or declassification. But that doesn't apply to this particular alleged crime. That has to be judged by what the rules were at the time. And at the time, the rules were a president could orally declassify. But were you saying, by the way, earlier that Hillary is a friend of yours? You're saying that of all the people that have defriended you, she is not one of them. No, she was a friend. I have no idea. I haven't seen her now. I can tell you this, that she spoke at an event on uh, Martha's Vineyard. It was the Jewish Democratic Council of America. And I was disinvited. I either wasn't Jewish enough 
or democratic enough or American enough, but I was not invited. She spoke at it. Um, I don't know whether she was aware that I was not invited. Um, so I don't know whether she's still a friend or not. I can tell you Bill Clinton, the last time I saw him, was very friendly uh, to me. And Sandy Berger, of course, died a few years ago, but he was very friendly to me. But right these days, I have no idea who my friends are because there's a cabal on Martha's Vineyard um, of, of people. And if they see anybody talking to me, they become part of the group that are now uh, uh, condemned. And so a number of these hypocrites on Martha's Vineyard have said, we're happy to have dinner with you, but don't tell anybody. And uh, I refuse all the time to is, have dinner it, with anybody who won't be seen with me in public. I think this is the last question, unless Dan has something. But I'm just curious because you actually know these people. Is it true that the Clintons had a sincere uh, transition, as you were saying before? That they seem to have come into office, uh, when was it, 88 or, whatever, or 92? No, 92. 92. 92. Um, skeptical of Israel, kind of sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. Hillary got in some trouble for some remarks she made back then. And they seem to have gone out of office. Truly, truly with warm feelings towards the Israeli nation and the Israeli people. Well, I can tell you that's absolutely not true of Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton came to office loving Israel, always was supportive of Israel. I've had numerous discussions with him. Uh, once I remember sitting at a dinner table with him and a, a Jewish friend of mine started attacking Netanyahu. And Bill and I started to respond and Bill hit me on the knee and said, let me take this. And he did. I think Hillary Clinton, you may be right. I think she came from a somewhat more lefty, uh, progressive background. Wellesley, you know, Wellesley, when she was there, still had a quota against Jews. Um, uh, By the way, there's an interesting fact. Um, In about 1990, I was maybe it was a little earlier. I was chairman of the Civil Rights Division of the Anti-Defamation League. And we had a report about schools that still had anti-Jewish quotas, guess what they had in common? Guess what every school in those days that had an anti-Jewish quota had in common? Ariel, you're not going to like this. I'm listening. They were all, they were all women's colleges. Uh, Wellesley, Smith, Holyoke, um, uh, I forget the others, but the only remaining schools. Why? Because there were two groups that dominated in all women's colleges kind of the old Brahmin, old-fashioned anti-Semites who never liked Jews, and the young radicals who have started not to like Jews. So those were the only schools. Now, they've given them up now a long time ago, but when Hillary was at Wellesley, it had an anti-Jewish quota. Okay, Professor Well, well my only question, my one last question is, yes. is uh, you know, you're getting the cold shoulder in Martha's Vineyard. You're being berated by Larry David. Are you staying there because you just love it so much or you're trying to make a point and saying, F you, I'm not going anywhere? Uh, well, it's a combination. They're not going to make me leave. You know, I came to this island 53 years ago to defend not a Republican, but to defend Ted Kennedy. I got a call from Ted wow. Kennedy, chief of staff, saying that the, the senator's driven off a bridge. Get to the vineyard. I didn't know what the vineyard was. I got to the vineyard, hated it the first time I was there. Then I fell in love with it. I like it very much. We just have new friends. We don't have anything to do with the Chilmark crazies. And um, and so, um, you know, we're, we're going to stay here. Um, but it's not it's you know, my wife didn't want me to represent um, Trump, but she's being attacked. 
She's being criticized. She is being ostracized. She worked, she was in a gym and some woman said, oh, that's Alan Dershowitz's wife. I can't be in the same room with her and left. I mean, we have not been invited to memorial services for friends. And, um, and we were invited to an engagement party. And then we got a letter saying, we have to disinvite you because if you showed up, half the people would leave. So, you know, that's what's going on. And they take me out of my wife. They take it out of my children. And, you know, do I recall about it in, in, in uh, the price of principle? Can you pull up the link on um, Amazon to show Professor Dershowitz's book? Okay. Alan, do I recall that you, there was some similar story to uh, to that when you were defending OJ, that the, in your shul, the people walked yeah, out? Yeah, like, but yeah, yeah, but not nearly as bad. Not nearly as bad. This is 10 times worse than OJ. Well, OJ only beheaded some people. I mean, he's not, I'm, right. I'm sorry. This is much worse than, much worse than anything else. But right. look, I have a thick skin. I will endure my family. They're unfairly being attacked. But when the library won't have me, the real victim then are the people in Schulmark who want to hear me or want to read my books. And that's intolerable. And that's what I will really, really fight back against. Hey, it's a pleasure to be Wait, on your me, show. I mean, I'm yeah. going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go. I want to tell you something. You know, today I was taking a shower and I'm, I turned 60 years old a few weeks ago. And, uh-huh. I'm, and I'm bothered by being 60. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, I hope that I can have as many vital years in front of me as, as friggin' Alan Dershowitz does. It's just <laughs> remarkable to me. And I would like to put in a reservation today to have you on your 100th birthday on our podcast. Uh, we, we, we well, very much I, enjoy maybe, that. but, you know, the Jewish tradition is you should live till 120. So let's make it the 120th birthday. Okay. But whenever I wish people you should live to 120, I always say in a few months, God forbid you should die on your birthday. So <laughs> all of us still 120. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Alan. I always love this. Can't Hi, wait to Alan. get back Thanks. to New York and be in the basement and listen to some great comedy. Please Thanks. Do. Please the do. Price of Principle by Alan Dershowitz available on Amazon. And uh, okay, you, let let Alan go. And I'm gonna I'm gonna okay, I want to yeah. make fun of Periel for a few minutes. Thank you. Bye, Alan. This is Periel. I like that you think by putting up a. I don't know, a 70 character link on a YouTube video that that's going to help our, our, uh, yes, our listeners go to the Amazon link. I think all they need is the name of the book. First of all, (laughs) put up up the link, Nicole. Our customers are, (laughs) go ahead. First of all, first of all, You know what? Can you just host the show and let me do the things that people ask me to do? He asked me to do something of that nature. And you know what? It didn't bother anybody but you. And also, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Ah, brother. Okay. Uh, Periel, I hope you're enjoying Greece. We'll see you back, I guess, uh, next week. It's hard to believe it's September almost already, already almost September. It goes just too fast. Why did summer go so quickly? Was it something that I said? You know, that's what, I don't know what that's uh, 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 windmills of my mind. Oh, Round, that's like a like French a thing in a spiral like a that's what, Thank you, everybody. Please podcast at comedy dot com. Let us know. I mean, we're a little as a podcast. We know it. Oh, Sometimes I got to tell you guys, What's I got invited as a as a thought leader and a podcast host by the government of Israel for a six-day tour. A six-day tour. <laughs> six. 
Uh, well, okay, great. We'll talk about that. Um, we can't wait to hear about it. when's that going to happen. Uh, uh, it's November. Well, we'll talk about it more as it as it gets closer, I suppose. Um, should we? Cl- should I close this out? Out now? Yes, please do. Let's podcast podcast at comedyshow.com. We know we're a bit all over the place. One week it's Alan Dershowitz. One week we're talking about stand up. You know, one week something else. Please help us focus on what you want to hear the most, or maybe you like us being a little bit all over the place. I don't know. We don't know. We can't read your mind. What? So thank you so much uh, for listening. Uh, thank you, Perry. I'll enjoy the rest of your time in Greece. I know it's always hard to, to leave a beautiful place like Greece, but we do look forward to seeing you. Yasu, yasu. And of course, a special thanks to our wizard, uh, our audio uh, uh, sorceress, Nicole Lyons, all the way uh, coming to us from Binghamton, New York. She lives in New York now, but her heart is still in Binghamton. Wrap it up, then. Okay, bye bye. <laughs>